In the year 1870, a four-year-old boy named Horatio Spafford, Jr., beloved by his family, died of scarlet fever at the family home in Chicago. The boy's father, the prominent Chicago attorney Horatio Spafford, Sr., was devastated. The father of five children, this was his only son. It was a tremendous loss for him. Then one year later, in the great Chicago fire of 1871, Spafford, who owned a great deal of property in Chicago, watched the majority of his property suddenly burn to the ground, thereby devastating the family's financial situation. This, too, was, of course, a tremendous loss. So to recap, before we go any further, in the course of just one year, the family had lost a son and immediately thereafter had lost its financial security. A tough year indeed. Well, grieving and reeling, Horatio Spafford, therefore, decided his family needed a vacation, needed some time away. And so he decided they would all go to England together for several weeks. But because he had several business items that were going to delay his ability to travel, Spafford went ahead and booked a ship for his wife, Anna, and for their four daughters so that they could go on ahead of him. Spafford's plan was to meet them in London in a few weeks. So off Anna and the four children sailed to England. Well, halfway across the Atlantic, the ship carrying Anna and the four children was struck by an iron sailing vessel. Reportedly, it was a tremendous collision. In the end, 226 people aboard their ship died in that crash. Four of those were Spafford's remaining children. Only his wife, Anna, survived. Upon learning of the tragedy, Spafford immediately boarded a ship to come meet Anna, and as the story has it, halfway to England, as his ship passed over the place where the tragedy had just happened a week earlier, as the story has it, Spafford there in the throes of grief, having now lost not only his family's financial security, but also all five of his children. There, in the midst of a despair one can scarcely begin to imagine, there, the story has it, right there, that's when, sitting atop that deck, that's when the story has it, Spafford pulled out a sheet of paper and wrote down these now familiar words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. End of that story. Now I've told that story many times as a pastor, for it is one of the most moving, poignant, inspiring stories I know. But I can assure you of this, I've never told it on Easter before. 
For let's face it, why would a pastor bring up such a sad story? Why would a pastor channel words born of such deep lament on a day set aside to celebrate the central event of the entire faith? This is a day typically marked for joy and jubilation, for ecstasy and excitement. So why then mar that mood with such a dark and devastating story? Why tell the story of Horatio Spafford on Easter Sunday? Well, we'll get to why in a moment. But for now, though, I want to talk briefly about the emotional trajectory of Holy Week. That is, about the emotional trajectory that is supposed to take place each year at Holy Week. You see, when the Christian church is properly observing Holy Week, there's a range of emotions that we are supposed to feel between Palm Sunday and Easter. And thus, the services of Holy Week, if properly designed, are supposed to evoke within us these emotions. Which means that Holy Week should go each year like this. At the beginning of the Palm Sunday service, we're supposed to feel a sense of triumph and power. We're supposed to feel excited and exhilarated. We're supposed to all feel swept up in something. As Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna ringing around him. And as the crowds loud him as the coming Messiah, as this happens at the beginning of the Palm Sunday service, we're supposed to feel like it's all under control. Like there's nothing to worry about. Like the world is in order and that all is well. Like our guys got this. But then halfway through the Palm Sunday service, we're supposed to be jolted by the sudden turn things take. Our confidence and our comfortability are supposed to be abruptly upended. And as we watch Jesus being arrested and later crucified, we're supposed to be crestfallen. And thus, we're supposed to leave the sanctuary that day disturbed and devastated. Emotionally prepared now to spend the rest of the week soberly and somberly reflecting on the fact that with Jesus' crucifixion, Rome has won again. And that with Jesus' crucifixion, a message has once more rung out that good does not always win. A message that the darkness is far more powerful than we could ever imagine. So you see, when we've properly observed Palm Sunday in this way, the way we're supposed to observe it, we're then prepared to experience the poignancy and the agony of the Last Supper on Maundy Thursday, and then a day later, the sheer anguish of the crucifixion on Friday, and then finally, the utter emptiness and despair of Holy Saturday. Only after we've properly done this, Christian theology holds, only after we've undergone this deep encounter with the reality of the fallen world in which we live and the reality of our own vulnerability in it, only then, Christian theology holds, only then are we truly prepared 
to comprehend the wonder and the joy and the promise of the resurrection on Easter. Only once we've walked in the disciples' shoes and felt our own confidence dashed, only once we have reckoned like the disciples with the fear that we have nothing left to hope for, only then does the shock and the wonder of the resurrection penetrate our once arrogant and self-assured spirits. Only then do we truly behold our own powerlessness in comparison to the powerfulness of the living God. That is how we are supposed to experience Holy Week. The thing is, though, we seldom do. As Christians in general and as Western Christians in particular, we have a tendency of skipping straight from the opening sequence of Palm Sunday to the grand celebration of Easter, thereby completely eliding the harrowing and humbling experiences that stand in between. And this is problematic for many reasons, not least being that it gives us a very false idea of the world we live in, not to mention of the Christian faith that we profess anchors us here in it. In fact, to skip over this harrowing and humbling week in this way tacitly suggests we don't need faith as an anchor because we're already perfectly stable and secure here as is. For you see, to skip from the triumphal entry to Sunday resurrection is to go from comfort to comfort, from confidence to confidence, from power to power. And let's face it, most years come Holy Week. This is an easy thing for us to do. Only this year it's not. And so I bring all of this up today. I offer this recap concerning the supposed trajectory of Holy Week and the theology that underpins it. Because this year, unlike most years, we arrive to this Easter Sunday harrowed and humbled. Unlike most Easter Sundays, we don't arrive this year with pomp and circumstance, with a sense of prepackaged joy and jubilation. We certainly, this Easter, don't arrive with a sense of power and victory and might. For this Easter, we don't, in fact, arrive at all. No, this Easter, we're confined to our own homes. And instead of show up to the sanctuary with Easter confidence, with our joy for the day already predetermined, no matter what happens in the service, instead, this year, we turn on the live stream not so much with prepackaged confidence as with quiet and humble hopefulness. Perhaps there will be a word of comfort for us, we hope. Right? Very different from how we usually experience Easter. Let's quickly survey the reality of the current moment. As of this morning, 110,000 people in the world have died from COVID-19. 20,580 of those in the United States alone. 
Hundreds of thousands more are sick and we don't have the medical supplies necessary to save a great many of them. Meanwhile, the global economy is tanking. In the last three weeks, just in America alone, 16 million people have lost their jobs. And all of us are currently confined to our own homes, only permitted to leave for emergency reasons. It is a tumultuous time. And so as we tune into the live stream this morning, people are grieving. People are scared. People are angry. People are depressed. People are exhausted. This Easter Sunday, unlike most Easter Sundays, there is no prepackaged joy and confidence that we bring into the day with us. No, this Easter Sunday, unlike most Easter Sundays, we come to our worship with a sense of alienation and anxiety, with a sense of devastation and despair. Which is all then to say, this Easter Sunday, perhaps more than any other Easter Sunday, we are prepared to experience the resurrection the way those first disciples experienced the resurrection. Hold that thought. Now go with me back to Horatio Spafford. Amid devastation and despair unlike anything we could ever imagine, Spafford wrote those famous lines, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, he began that beautiful poem. Or when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, it strikes me this Easter that this is not just a beautiful hymn. It strikes me this Easter that this is also the core of the Christian gospel. And with it, the very message we in this moment of tumult most desperately need to hear. For you see, the hope of the resurrection, as much as we might wish otherwise, is not the promise of security and stability and invulnerability and comfort. The hope of the resurrection, as much as we might wish otherwise, is not a promise of earthly power and glory and might. No, the promise of the resurrection, as much as we might wish otherwise, is instead the simple but profound hope that though we are subject to darkness and death and despair in this fallen world, that nonetheless God's loving goodness will one day have the final word. And therefore to say it is well with my soul is not to say it is well because I'm going to pretend it is, even when it is obviously not. Instead, to say it is well with my soul is to say it is well even though it is not because I trust the God through whose power it one day will be. For the person of faith, the Easter hope all comes down to this central bedrock trust. 
that if on Sunday God raised the same Jesus who was crucified on Friday, then one day that same God will redeem a world that is quite obviously suffering today. That is the Christian hope. And every day as Christians we hope. But on Easter we celebrate our reason to hope. Every day as Christians, we say it is well. But on Easter, we celebrate our reason for trusting that it is true, even in those times when it is obviously not. When peace like a river attendeth my When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well soul. Early that morning, John writes, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb of Jesus and she saw that the stone had been removed. Assuming that robbers had come and absconded with his body, Mary unable to take it any longer. Mary, now completely overcome with grief and despair, Mary now in this moment begins to weep. And it is here, here amid her anguish that a completely unexpected and utterly astonishing thing happens. Here now the risen Christ appears to her. This same Jesus whom she loved and has just lost, the man whose death represents for her the loss of hope, the loss of everything. Here now he stands with her once more, whispering to her, Mary, why are you weeping? Friends, on this peculiar Easter 2020, when our world is in tumult and so many of us are weeping in it, Let us, on this Easter 2020, hang our hope on this scene right here. And follow me closely now. Screaming, Mary runs to her Lord and she hugs him with all that she has in her. And lovingly, Jesus hugs her back. But then delicately, he pulls away from the embrace, saying to her, do not hold on to me yet. You cannot hold on to me yet. Yet, and then just like that, he's gone. Was there joy for Mary in this moment? Absolutely. Was there jubilation in this experience of the resurrection? No doubt. Did she immediately experience a brand new outlook on life? Undoubtedly. But let us also understand this same Mary who wept tears of grief at the sight of the empty tomb and who wept tears of joy at the sight of Jesus resurrected. This same Mary would soon enough weep many more tears of grief. 
For with the resurrection, bliss and comfort and power and security had not set in for her, not in some permanent way. For that is just the reality of living in a fallen, broken world in which we cannot yet hold on to the glory of the risen Christ. We know it is one day coming. We stake our lives on the faith and the hope and the trust that it is one day coming. But until that day, as the Apostle Paul writes, we groan. And so it was that in the groanings of faith and in hope and in trust, Mary, through the power of the resurrection, learned to say, it is well. That first Easter Sunday, Mary learned to say, it is well, even when it is not. And I tell Mary's story this Easter, and I tell Horatio Spafford's story this Easter, because in the end, their story is the Easter story. And thus, their hope is the Easter hope. Not the assurance of power or certainty or stability or might, but simply the capacity to say it is well and somehow trust that it is true even in those times when it is plainly not. I close now with this. In the 13th century, Julian of Norwich famously received 16 visions of what she called the divine love revealed. 16 visions from a direct encounter she herself claims to have had with the risen Lord. And in her recantation of this experience, she writes that though it terrified her mightily to ask him, she was unable to refrain from querying the risen Christ about the presence of suffering in the world. How can this be, she asked. How could this be allowed? To which, according to her famous memoir, Christ simply responded, Trust me, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It is an answer enigmatic and incomplete. But on this Easter Sunday, while we weep, let us also rejoice in the embrace of the risen Christ, even if we cannot hold on to him yet. And on this Easter Sunday, when across the world sorrows like sea billows roll, let us take heart that some 2,000 years ago today, Christ our Lord was risen. And that because he was, we have reason to trust that though it may seem anything but obvious now, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It is well, it is well with my soul. Take courage, dear friends, and believe this good news. 
that right here in the midst of this suffering world, Christ our Lord is risen indeed. Amen.